Hey there, friends. Before we get to a brand new episode of the official Do Good Better podcast, we want to thank you, the listener, for subscribing and sharing with all of your nonprofit friends. Most importantly, we need to be thanking the sponsors to this very show. Hey, if you're in the market for a CRM system that makes your life easier, there is no better item in your fundraising toolbox than DonorDoc. DonorDoc is not only the premier sponsor to the show, it is the premier and intuitive CRM system that not only has everything you want, but has zero things you don't. No one needs complicated, especially when you wear 10,000 different hats at your nonprofit. So get DonorDoc and use Do Good Better at checkout and get a month free to try it out. Thanks, DonorDoc, for being an awesome sponsor. Hey, speaking of life being easier, fundraising is not. And as a listener to this podcast, I hope you found some insight and tips and tricks on how to make it a little less challenging. But if you're looking for a more content, more done-for-you templates, weekly support, and a community of other do-gooders like yourself to either commiserate, challenge, co-create, or celebrate with, join Do Good University. Hey, it's our brand new membership site. We have hours and hours of on-demand trainings, exclusive guest expert webinars, and access to the entire Do Good Better crew to answer all of your pressing questions. All of that is for an affordable monthly fee. So visit dogooduniversity.com or click the link in the show notes for details. Hey, get ready for another episode of the official Do Good Better podcast. Your organization is awesome, but sometimes you want to be even awesomer. It's time to get your fundraising on with your host, fundraising expert and author, Patrick Kirby. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the official Do Good Better podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Kirby. And of course, we talk with people who are going to help our small and medium-sized nonprofits do good better. But I got a treat for you today. Not even a but. I have a treat for you today. Um, sometimes, uh, we get fortunate enough to have on the show, um, really amazing people talking about really amazing things who are really big in the pantheon of the nonprofit world. And, um, what I'd love to do in talking with individuals like this is to let you know that a, your nonprofit matters and doesn't matter the size, but B, the challenges and the successes and the celebrations are all the same regardless of how big you are. And I'm so excited. It's kind of a personal one for me uh, today too. Um, so we're just get right to it. This is going to be a fun episode uh, all around. Uh, I have with us uh, a two a two for guest today, which is going to be great. Uh, I have uh CEO of the uh, Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption, Rita Sorensen. How are you today? I am fantastic. Thank you for having us. I there. love it. And with, uh, with her today, Jill... Uh, uh, Here's the thing. I I love uh, the names uh, challenge, and I got it right the first time. Jill, Jill Krumbacher. Uh, yeah, she is yeah. the uh, Senior VP of uh, Marketing and Development, also of the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption. Welcome to the official Do Good Better podcast. Thank you. Excellent. All right. So if um, if people are kind of finding us on uh, YouTube or Spotify, or they're finding us on uh, all sorts of channels, you can find this delightful podcast. Hmm. Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption. Sounds interesting. Sounds awesome. But they might not know exactly what you do. So could you indulge us at a 5,000 foot level just to kind of introduce yourselves, who you are, what you do, and why we're talking today? 
Absolutely. Maybe I'll jump in. Um, the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption is a national nonprofit public charity. We were founded by Dave Thomas, and I think there are still enough folks in this world who know who Dave Thomas was. He created that incredible brand, the Wendy's Company, that sells square hamburgers and Frosties. Um, but he was adopted. I think for us, more important than that, he was adopted. And as he was moving into his career a little bit toward the end of being CEO, really wanted to put in place something that spoke to what Wendy's has always done, which is give back to the community. And so created the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption to really do two things. Um, as a one-trick pony to dramatically increase the adoptions of children who are in North America's foster care system. And we all know they're there because they've been abused or neglected or abandoned. They're there through no fault of their own. But in order to do that well, we also had to significantly increase the awareness of what are the issues? Why are children in foster care? What is the foster care system? How do people begin to step into what can feel like a, a, a complex government system if they do want to help these children? So that's who we are and that's what we do. Dramatically increase the adoptions of children out of North America's foster care system through signature programs and efforts. But while we're doing that, making sure there's a robust conversation about who these children are and, and how they can help. Jill, one of the questions that I think a lot of people have, and again, if you haven't looked into, uh, you know, adopting or or, or the, the child system in, in general, it's it is like you said, extremely complicated, um, probably uh, over the top frustrating for those who are in uh, in sort of the foster care system. And um, how do how do you explain? Um, without sort of overwhelming the senses of the, the average person who just thinks like, oh, well, there are some children who need some homes to be put in. Like that seems to be as simple as possible. How do you explain the enormity of um, the, the the system here without despair, right? And And the overwhelming, there's no way we can solve any of this as an issue. Great question. So... It Definitely the issue of adoption and particularly foster care adoption is not one that most people are fluent in the language and the terminology and the words that go along with that. And so um, we really focus on our messaging to use normal terminology, normal words, but we do use things like statistics, you know, the the um, over 100,000 children waiting, let's say, um, in the foster care system in the U.S. to be adopted. We use those numbers because we need people to understand the enormity of it, but you can't do that and then leave them in the despair. You have to then give them, well, what can you do about it? What can, what can I do about it? And so we talk about adoption, we talk about foster care, and we talk about um, giving to the cause is a great way that you can get involved. Mentoring is a great way that you can get involved. So we never leave out some of the other steps um, that someone can do to get involved um, in a cause like this in order to make it seem like something that they can make a difference in. I think that's important. No, I think I think it is too. And and again, I, I not dwelling on oh overwhelming, but hey, here's what we've done so far, and here's just we've only begun. So maybe really you can talk a little bit about um, what are some of the big signature wins that the foundation has had, or some of the big like pat on the back. It we're in the Midwest. We don't like to brag a little bit, right? So this is kind of a, this is an oddity for us uh, to talk about, but we, we like to know. 
um, what people are doing to move the needle forward for, you know, accomplishing their mission. So is there a couple of signature things that you just love to just shout from the rooftops that the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption has done? You're just super, you're super stoked about it. Yeah, we do love to share about how we are putting our signature efforts behind this cause. One of those is called the Wendy's Wonderful Kids Program, and it is a a service program. Look, we're a grant-making organization, so we provide grants to organizations to hire full-time adoption professionals who work on the longest waiting children in their community. And underneath this is a model we've developed that's evidence-based that's beginning to scale across the nation. Um, And so Wendy's Wonderful Kids, for example, if you ask me what's the best thing about it is we have moved more than 13, nearly 13,000 children to permanency as a result of Wendy's Wonderful Kids. What's remarkable behind that is these are the children who have been, excuse me, lingering in foster care the longest. Mm -hmm. They're in sibling groups, they're teenagers, they have special needs. They're children who have been in foster care for so long that they actually resist these efforts at moving them into a family because they don't trust family any longer. They don't trust this notion of safety because they haven't been made safe. They haven't had um, viable families in their lives. So the Wendy's Wonderful Kids program is something that we started as a pilot project in 2004 in seven sites across the nation. We now have more than 500 of these full-time adoption professionals across the United States and Canada that are working on behalf of today, as we sit here, more than 6,000 children who otherwise would linger in foster care. One more point about that is that every year in this country, 20,000 children of the more than 100,000 children who are waiting to be adopted, 20,000 children leave foster care without that promise we made to them that we will find you a family. And so that's the sweet spot that the Wendy's Wonderful Kids program steps in and solves. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Uh, Jill, Jill what, what about the foster system do people get wrong? And and how does the the sort of Dave Thomas Foundation itself sort of like navigate, hey, no, no, that's not what this is, or this is what we actually do. I mean, because I think there's a lot of misconceptions in sort of the adoption realm, uh, it's, it's foster realm. And how do you counter some of those misconceptions as part of your marketing or part of your fundraising and part of your conversations with donors and community partners? Sure. We have a, a, a it'd be good to word it as maybe, a, I don't know if it's exactly 10, but a top 10 list of misconceptions, right? And at the top of that, when you're talking about the foster care system, is how children get into the foster care system. So um, a very unfortunate uh, statistic is that so many people think, more than half the people in this country believe that a child ends up in the foster care system because of something that they've done wrong, um, because they're a juvenile delinquent. Um, And that's not the system that we route kids (laughs) through for that. Children are simply in the foster care system really for two main reasons, and that would be abuse and neglect. And that is how those children or teenagers end up in the foster care system. And so it's really important to understand that when you're approaching um, the foster care system. Um, But there are others that go along with it as well. And another popular one that I would say is when you're talking about adoption, um, people think that all avenues of adoption are expensive. Um, And that's not the case with foster care adoption because of the state custody of these children um, in order to adopt from the foster care uh, system. It's, it's, not much at all. And the expenses that are there are typically reimbursed. So those are 
two big misconceptions that tag along with foster care adoption. Yeah, I love that. Well, one of the things that I really like is, um, well, and I think small nonprofits and, and, and sort of even medium-sized nonprofits are always looking to how do we um, how do we clear over clever when it comes to um, either mission or core beliefs or whatever. I, and I think what I love most about um, your foundation is the simplicity with the core beliefs. Right, every child deserves a safe and family. No child should linger in the in the foster care without leaving with the permanent family, and every child is adoptable. What makes these three particular core beliefs that you have, Rita, um, so appealing? I think not only to donors, but just to the it, it making the uh, foundation itself run a lot smoother by just going, "Hey, here's what it is. We're not going to get super fancy with like a billion and a half things. We're going to get right to the point that this is the stuff." Does that help? Uh, and and or or does it hinder? you know, sort of the availability and that sort of, um, hey, we could get a lot more money. We could have a lot more things if we do a lot more stuff. Right, right. Look, nonprofits, and I've, I've run other nonprofits that were, were smaller and always looking for those dollars to come in the door. And it's very easy to, to get into mission drift, right? Because you go where the dollars are and a funder says, well, if you just did this, we might help you. For us, it's always, even when we were much smaller, it was very clear. There's one thing that we need to do. And we need to make sure these children can get out of foster care and into adoptive homes. And so having those those three core values helps underscore every day for every staff member, the sense of urgency, because we have to think about, look, children are in foster care. They're, they're, They're suffering through grief and loss, having been separated from their family, no matter what the circumstances were. They've endured layers of trauma. While they're in foster care, they frequently move from home to home, from school to school. So we put more layers of trauma on them. If we don't singularly focus through these core values, then we do them another injustice because it is a complex government system and quality isn't always what is behind activities for children. So that keeps us, I think, amped every day in in what can be sad stories. It keeps us focused and it keeps us singularly aware that in the broader context of, well, we've got to keep families from coming into the system. We should address issues of poverty. We should address issues of, of financial insecurity. We should address all those other issues that surround our families. We can be expert in that, but we have to stay focused on what our mission is. And that's allowed us, I think, to be fairly successful and to raise the kind of dollars that are necessary because I think funders also see the credibility underneath our efforts. Mm -hmm. I I hope people, when they're listening to this, pay really good attention to that because, again, it doesn't matter what your size is. If you can niche down to a scope that's easily understandable and you can just continue just hammering away at that being amazing and great at that, the dollars will follow because it's easier to explain. And Jill, that's really one of the, the, the next questions I had is, how do you explain the the need of you know funding this uh, for for a, for as much as possible and how do you stand out in a very crowded nonprofit space um, you know with a global conflict and you know sort of uh, you know, basic needs of, of food scarcity and et cetera that are just really top of mind of a lot of donors is that I think a lot of nonprofits are like I, nobody's even paying attention to us do you find that there's a challenge even where you sit, at, you know, sort of as this fundraising, you know, VP at at at, uh, at the foundation, do you find that to be challenging? And how do you sort of position yourself uh, to be noticed so that funders and donors and people who really want to help find you and then can make a difference? 
Sure. So absolutely. Um, donors are going to give to what they're passionate about. And so each donor has their own set of passions and interests that they build up over a lifetime. And so you want to find a way to connect with that donor. You know, you don't need to connect with the donor that's more passionate about this cause or that one. You need to find the one that's going to connect with you. And the way to do that is to get really comfortable with your marketing department. Now, in our uh, in our um, organization, our fundraising and marketing departments are combined. So we're one big, you know, happy family. Family. Um, but what a marketer will teach you is how to segment your audience. You can't try to talk to everyone. You can't just put an ad out there um, on a macro level and expect it to find the right audience. You're not going to be able to keep, compete that way because who's out there against you are the people that have the dollars to talk to the masses all of the time. And that's a really expensive thing. What's been more successful to us, and it's not it's not cheap either, but is to try to segment our audiences and find those audiences that we feel will be most receptive. And what that takes is testing. So um, we do it in our social media or digital fundraising. We test talking to this audience or this audience um, and see how it, how it responds. We also do it in our mail. Um, we test this type of audience and this type of audience, this type of letter and that type of letter and figure out what's working. And we hone in the type of person who is most interested in, in hearing about us. And we find commonalities around different causes. And so I think that's really important is to not, you can't try to talk to everyone to the best of your ability, um, being able to get with your marketing team and figure out how do I find the audience that I need to talk to and how do I reach them? Not how do I reach everyone? I, it's so it's such an important thing that you just mentioned there too, is that a lot of your best donors and the people who are going to talk nice about your organization and introduce you to more people are your tribe. It's the people who just love you out of the gate. And if you can invest time and talent in that, but I love what you said, test, test some things, you know, don't be afraid to get outside of your comfort zone. Don't spend all your time there because that's not where they're, that's not where your biggest cheerleaders are, but test and, and take some time and some energy and some effort and some financial uh, investment to do doing that because you're always going to want more people to talk about how uh, amazing you are and what amazing programs that you have coming up, which is the question that I would love to ask Rita is kind of see the horizon coming down here. What, what sort of things do you have in the hopper uh, that you would love to see a part of the foundation itself? Or what sort of next steps do you see the foundation taking in order to sort of you see the need increasing and, and and the necessary things that you have to do to grow in order to place more kids in these forever homes. Yeah, it's a it's a great question. And, and one thing that we talk about a lot now is we've spent a lot of time over the past couple of decades making sure that these signature programs are in place, that they're tested, that they're evaluated, that we're constantly refining and making sure that it's appropriate for uh, the day that we're in. Um, but one thing that is missing is we can do all of this work and make sure that children get into adoptive families. But because so many of these children do have 
again, layers of trauma that follow them, there may be particular needs that those children have even once that adoption is finalized. Um, what we like to say is adoption isn't the exclamation mark in this sentence, it's the comma. And so how do we as an organization apply those same strategies that we used in order to grow our successful existing programs to begin to look at how do we make sure that families have access to resources, supports, evidence-based programs that can support them post-adoption so that if a child has particular physical or mental health needs, that an adoptive family isn't totally in the dark, not knowing where to go, that if that a family doesn't feel embarrassed asking for help, that a family can continue to thrive with this child. And it's not every family, but a lot of these families have absolute post-adoption needs. When you think about a family that adopts a 15-year-old, right? That's a, it's a fully baked kid at that point. And so there may be some issues that surface after a month or six months or even a year that they hadn't anticipated. So that's one of those big strategic conversations that we're having now that we hope to move into. How do we make sure that not only that these adoptions as an adoption, legal adoption was successful, but the outcomes for these children and families maintain stellar results post-adoption. And Jill, does that have something to do with kind of the partnerships that you build, not only in the marketing world, but in the fundraising world is trying to connect the dots on the back end? And is that part of your strategic plan as you're out and about talking with potential donors and supporters and saying, listen, sometime down the road, we might have this sort of bridge that builds here. And how do you start that conversation, even if you don't have something solidified yet? Because I think a lot of nonprofits might not even mention that, or a lot of organizations might not even consider that. You know, if you're if you're looking in forwardly, you know, sort of that forward vision casting on what could be because there's a need, they might not even mention it because it's not fully sort of developed. But I think there might be uh, some hints and tips and tricks that you might have to just even have the conversations out of the gate in order to go back and go, you know what, that thing we sort of whispered together over coffee might have some results down the road. And why you should always continue to have these conversations, even if it's not fleshed out yet. Absolutely. And I think um, when we have conversations with donors, a lot of those things come out. Sometimes you don't have to be the one to mention it. If we're dealing with, you know, and having a great conversation, a sit down meeting, which we love to have with, you know, major gift donors, they, the ones that are really supporting you usually have a lot of deep questions and they want to know what are those things you're thinking about? Or, you know, I adopted a child and this was important to me. Are you doing that? And so they often will tell us where their heart is, where they think um, areas for further development in the work might be. And similarly, on a more mass level, we send out surveys to our donors and our supporters. And we say, why do you you know, why do you care about this cause? Tell, tell me more. Tell me, tell me what you're interested in. Tell me what you're most passionate in. And so often those kind of strategic conversations you might be having as a leadership team over here, you very quickly get an understanding of, you know, we've got a donor base here. Um, you know, I'm hearing more and more from those, from those big donors that this is an area that's important to them, or I can see that in the data from my small donors as well. So um, sometimes those are things that can come together at that point, but often it doesn't always have to be a decision about what you front because they want to tell you. They want to tell you what they're interested in and what they'd like to see you work on. Um, sometimes you have to say, no, that's that's just not going to be in our mission. That's mission creep. Um, and sometimes you're like, yeah, we, we'd like to do that too. Um, so I, I think those conversations come together naturally sometimes. Rita, how do you go about um, sort of 
when you're having conversations with some of these high-level donors or some of these partners that you're having, um, how do you determine like if that is a you know somebody that you're going to know and, and love and follow? Is there a question that you like asking, or is there an answer that you love the answer to? You're like, that's going to be my person. That's going to be the one that I'm going to follow up with because I, you know I think I think a lot of people are just trying to figure out. What do I need to know? What are some of the analytics that I'm just sort of looking for? But something tells me that there's usually a phrase or a word or something that people say that you're like, okay, this is these are our people. This is what we're going to try to chase after. Here's who we want to align with. But is there something that you're just looking for out of a partner or out of a conversation? You're like, oh, it's gonna this is gonna be really beneficial for both of us together. It's really interesting because, look, we all know, I think all of your viewers know, and and it's so critical here, this is a business that's all about relationships. Mm -hmm. And COVID kind of helped separate those a little bit. Could you create a relationship over a video screen, right? Could you talk to a donor virtually and still get the same impact? And so what is it, you're right, what is it about that conversation, whether it's in person or virtually, that you feel in alignment? And I think that's what it's all about. Do you automatically feel in alignment? Because you're talking the same talk. Whether you're in the same business or not, somehow you found that core value value that is caring about children. For us, it's caring about children. This is always underneath all of this. How do we make children in this country an absolute number one priority, whether it's through a corporation, through the government, through a a community, through the faith-based community? How is it that we can make children and families a a core value and a priority? And that comes through in those conversations when you begin to talk and and feel passionate about something. So I always look at, um, do these folks really in some way tell me, however it is, either through their personal experience, through their professional experience, or their philanthropic interests, do they care about children? Then we're on and we're off like lightning. And then it's always about follow-up, right? Right. Do not underestimate the power of a handwritten thank you, the power of an email thank you, the power. Something Jill didn't talk about is we've, now this team, her team has worked very hard at, how do we not just do one and done, thank you for that $10 gift, but we follow up. We make sure that there's information flow back to donors, no matter what size they are. And it's the same with the partnership. Keep that information flowing, keep that energy flowing, because one conversation is never enough. It might be the, the flame, but that flame can go out so quickly if, if the person on the other side doesn't feel like you're engaged as well. If you've uh, been a longtime listener of the show, every one of these themes that you've been talking about is resonating with everybody else who's listening right now. And that's the beauty of this is that the organizations that get it right do the basics really well. The thank you notes, the follow-up, the relationship building stuff. This is where, you know, if you're looking for entities to emulate, go back and listen to this interview over and over again, because this is kind of what it is. Uh, Joe, I'd be very curious to kind of see your reaction on uh, trends that you're seeing as far as your events and your marketing and your uh, your sort of uh, appeal work. What's what's looking up? What's trending up? What what are you seeing uh, that, that donors are really vibing with as far as uh, that kind of uh, the speak? And is it, is, are we back to events? Are we just relying on appeals? What does that look like for your donor relationships? You know, we can uh, we continue to see we're an organization that's um, probably lighter on events. Um, we have corporate events that we do, but but less um, event based fundraising overall than than perhaps some organizations. So for us, you know, it's been amazing to see the fact that direct mail is not going away. <laughs> um, direct mail is 
still a big part of many organizations' budgets. And in fact, we felt a little behind the eight ball on that, that maybe we weren't in it um, at one point and are now um, investing quite heavily in it. So some of those um, channels that you think of are old um, are still critical. And in many ways, um, you know, it, it doesn't get um, sent back in an email, doesn't go into a junk email box, right? There's, there's not all kind of some of those rules around marketing when you talk about direct mail. So it's really amazing to me how we are right now building and growing and investing in direct mail. But that is not a channel that's gone uh, by the wayside, even as we are continually investing and growing in digital. They seem like polar opposites, um, but they're both effective for us. Um, And so I, I guess, you know, the advice is the numbers tell it, um, the trends tell it. Uh, we have some great partners that are able to tell us, you know, how some of their other clients are doing. So you can look at those metrics across an industry um, and maybe not just in your own door. What is the rest of the industry? What are my peers doing? We pick up the phone and we call our aspirational peers. We talk to larger nonprofits from us than us, and they're happy to talk to us. And we're happy to say, look, we're doing all these things. What are you doing? Because we don't, we probably don't share a donor. We don't have to compete. Their, their cause is way different than ours is. And we have donors that are passionate about both, right? And so, um, you know, I think not counting out a channel, um, considering what the trends are, and you'll be surprised by some of those channels that are still alive and active and really a large part of people's budgets. I love I love that you have this abundance mindset of we can call our peers, we can talk about this because nobody's going to go. There's plenty of do- there are yeah. plenty of donors out there. Yeah. There are plenty of people who want plenty of causes. You're going to be fine. It's okay to talk about some of this stuff. I appreciate almost the permission given to those who are listening. That'd be great. And and Rita, I kind of wanted to talk a little bit about this um, with you too about storytelling. You know, from your appeals, you're you're going out and you're writing that. There's a lot of organizations that have very sensitive clients. Right. So individuals who may be uh, sort of uh, sort of, uh, you know, either rape and abuse and that kind of thing where they're they're very sensitive to how they promote and tell stories. And I feel like adoption and I feel like, um, you know, some of the things that you're working on um, with sort of foster, there is a very uh, razor's edge of what should be a celebratory story of overcoming challenge and then that razor's edge of being sort of exploitive and 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 to have an organization of your size sort of be in this middle trying to do the best amount of peel work and storytelling has got to be really really challenging how do you navigate that to make sure that your donors understand your your sponsors understand how important this is without tipping that a little left to center and to say that we shouldn't be talking about x y and z yeah, we grapple with this all the time, you know, over the years, and I've always been in this child welfare business, you get reporters calling saying, hey, we want a, a child to talk about their experience. Mm-hmm. We're not going to do that. You know, if maybe someone else will offer up that child, we're not going to do that. Unless, look, it, it, the, the new trend as well, though, is, and it's not so much a trend, but, but there's much more emphasis on it, is lived experience voices in child welfare. We can't change an ineffective system unless those who have lived through it have a voice at the table. But those are typically older youth, right? Youth that have either been adopted or aged out of care and have made that intentional adult decision to share what they've experienced. 
We do a lot of storytelling through videos because what we do want to make sure that the public understands is that this is a, a normal part of this country. We want to normalize the conversation of adoption. We don't want to normalize abuse and neglect. That needs to go away. But we want to normalize the notion that children deserve to live in families, that some children aren't in families, and that families can step forward and do perhaps different than that what they were thinking. If they were thinking about adopting an infant, we're never going to try to dissuade them from that. Well, we want them to concurrently think there's another option here as you're thinking about adoption, that's foster care adoption. So the storytelling we tend to do very publicly is video storytelling of families that have been formed through adoption. And we go through a lot of layers to make sure that the family has full permission, the family understands, the children involved understand what's going on. We have experts that are there at the video sessions so that they can help guide if something begins to turn into a difficult conversation, they can intervene. So we're really very careful. Um, and we've had times when some of those stories have gone a little bit south after they're in the can, we stop using them. So absolutely, it's a very fine line between exploitation and celebration. And we hope we never, we never cross the line to the left of exploitation, but we're always very cautious about the celebration as well. Well, and I, and I love that you said that too, and I, and I, that's such a wonderful way to kind of think about that. And and I hope that encourages individual organizations who are trying to figure out how to tell their own story is don't stop telling your story, just tell it in a way that is appropriate. And I think that that pause or like, I don't even know if I can talk about this in public. Well, just think about it a little bit differently and get some perspectives and make sure that you're doing that. Uh, you're doing that right. Jill, if um, somebody drops an inordinate amount of money, a multiple comma check uh on your doorstep um what what happens uh what where what is that big hairy audacious goal that the foundation has that if money was no option what would you do well you know we are on a mission to scale our Wendy's wonderful kids program across the country we're already in every state but we're on a mission to get enough recruiters to serve all the waiting children in every state and we are well on our way to, to doing that it's simply the financial dollars you know that we need to go from you know it taking us 10 more years to it taking us five more years right and so we're already on a path we're already um far down the path as far as success towards our goal. But the faster that we can get support, the faster that we can make sure all of these waiting children have a recruiter in the case of one of these wonderful kids working on their case because they are turning 18 and they are turning 21. There's an urgency there um, that, that then it's too late, right? And so um, if we get a big check, we're going to look at our existing programs and we're going to try to do them faster. Um, and in some cases, what Rita already talked about, there are a lineup of other things we'd like to be able to do, like get into that, you know, post-adopt work. So we have um, several great priorities that we would do with that, with that money. And it simply would allow us to do what we want to do faster. Well, if somebody's listening to this program and they've got a giant sack of money sitting under the <laughs> haven't wanted to do with it, I want them to give it to you, but they might not know where on earth to go and give it. Rita, where on earth do you go to learn not only more about the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption, but how they can give, how they can support, how they can be their own champion in their own state, and maybe they're, they're, they want to bring you in to talk even more? How do they get a hold of you? Very easy. DaveThomasFoundation.org. 
And the website has all of those vehicles they can give online. They can send their check in to the office if they'd like. It's also an 800 number if people want to talk to us directly. Look, we like we like face-to-face, voice-to-voice conversation. Um, so it's 800-ASK-D-T-F-A, as in Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption. Um, so those are the two best ways. But I think, you know, we're really accessible. Um, we certainly enjoy emails directly to, to both of us or to all of our staff. We're, we're available pretty much 24-7. I know my staff is probably going to roll their eyes on that one, but, <laughs> but we are. Because these, look, these children are in care 24-7. And so I, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a bit of an urgency, at least at my desk, and I know at, at most of the folks' desks here, that if they have to be in care 24-7, then we need to be available to, to respond to donors that are interested in it, in, in the cause, to people that want us to come share more about the complexities of this system and get them involved. We have a great adoption-friendly workplace program that encourages employers to put benefits in the workplace for families that adopt. We love encouraging corporations to get involved, not just for that, but, but to get their employees involved. So lots of ways, but DaveThomasFoundation.org is the best first step. I love it. Um, our family uh, is an adopted family too. My sister was adopted and uh, this was kind of one of those uh, situations where I got to you know, chat with an entity that just means a lot uh, to, to, to me personally. But thank you so much, not only for what you do, from the adoption and, and sort of working in foster care. Uh, thanks so much for your perspective, uh, for those who are in the nonprofit realm and, and seeing so many opportunities to do what you are doing at the level that they have the capacity to do and encourage storytelling and encourage thank you notes and getting those basics really right and build relationships. That is so important for them to hear. It doesn't matter what level and what area that you work in, in the nonprofit realm, it's the same no matter what the size of the organization. So thank you so much, Jill, uh, for spending uh, some time with us, giving your perspective. Thank you so much, Rita, for being a champion. Uh, it's so great. But most of all, thank you so much for being a guest here on the official Do Good Better podcast. We'll put all the links in the show notes. So go over there and drump a bu- dump a bunch of money and then come back and give a five-star rating on this one on iTunes and Spotify and everything else between. Thank you so much, everybody. I so appreciate you being on the show today. It's been a pleasure having you. Thanks so much. Thank you. Fundraising is hard, and as a listener to this podcast, I hope you found some insight, tips, and tricks on how to make it a little less challenging. But if you're looking for a lot more content, done-for-you templates, weekly support, and a community of other do-gooders like yourself to commiserate, challenge, co-create, or celebrate with, I want to invite you to join Do Good University. It's our brand new membership site. We're going to have hours of on-demand trainings, exclusive guest expert webinars, and access to the Do Good Better crew to answer all of your pressing questions, all for an affordable monthly fee. So visit dogooduniversity.com or click the link in the show notes for details.